HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. And welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. And today we're talking about more than a food craze. But you know, it seems that the cycle of, of food and becoming food crazes goes round and round. There were the donuts all of a sudden that became big and cupcakes, even hot dogs and all kinds of specialty hot dogs. Well, now it seems that fried chicken, not that it ever went away, has become the new food craze. There are restaurants opening devoted solely to chicken, fried chicken, and there are cookbooks devoted to fried chicken or southern fried foods. And it seemed like a couple of months ago, all of the major magazines, food magazines, had a picture of fried chicken on the cover. I thought, huh, what is this all about? we got to look into this a little bit more. Well, you know, Fried chicken is one of those comfort foods, as far as I can see, something that really satisfies us. It, there was a time back when, that I still remember, when you didn't go to the beach or have a picnic without packing up some fried chicken. And a social gathering, or as we called them a social, didn't occur without having some fried chicken. Then our health craze kind of set in, and we felt a little guilty about eating fried chicken. I think everything has come around again, and nothing conjures up mouth-watering cravings more than the words southern fried. But southern fried also conjures up a whole lot more. My guest today is Michael Twitty. And Michael is a teacher, a culinary historian who focuses on the foodways of Africa and enslaved African Americans and the African diaspora and the influence of that on, Amer on um, Southern food history. He is a living history interpreter. And welcome, Michael. I think you have a lot to say on this subject. <laughs> well, thank you. So thank you. tell me a little bit about 
fried chicken. And everyone says, oh, well, it's southern fried chicken, and the best fried chicken is in the south, and that's where it comes from. Hmm. <laughs> you got something to say about that? Okay, so here's the first part. African influences in American cuisine are very subtle. They're very um, subcutaneous, you know. They don't really slap you in the face. Like any other aspect of the African cultural heritage. And the reason for that, the reason for that is the fact that as enslaved people, we were not, our ancestors rather, were not allowed to openly express parts of their identities. So they slipped it in. They creolized it. Fried chicken itself, the actual deep frying of chicken um, in West Africa, which was the crossroads of many different cultural influences, um, is something that probably goes back um, a long time. Palm oil, um, um, groundnut oil, shea oil, karite. Um, coconut oil, all these things were being used for deep frying. And even today, in a lot of West African marketplaces, you go and they'll make fried, a version of fried chicken that's basically just um, spiced chicken, spiced meat parts thrown into a you know, cauldron of hot boiling oil. There's no flour on it. There's no coating. There's no batter. It's simply, you know, what I call bride chicken. I make that at home too, but I didn't know it was had a had a root until I started doing this research, where it's just kind of like chicken with a nice rub and marinade, and you just kind of fry it as is. In the 1730s, Jean Barbeau, who was a slave trader, Huguenot slave trader, and um, travel writer, talks about how you can buy a whole fried chicken um, at one particular market for very cheap. And so there's this idea, even before we're in North America, that the frying of chicken is very important. You see it, you see it in, in Brazil as well. You see these kind of like diversions of fried chicken. But I think the version that we're talking about, a lot of food historians trace back to uh, Mary Randolph's um, Virginia housewife. Uh, in the second edition, which appears, uh, Mary's not with us anymore by the time the recipe actually appears which is very important. It was not in the 1824 edition. It was in the later edition after she passed away. And that was our first sort of, you know, our culinary literature evidence there was such a thing as fried chicken. Interesting. And um, I was talking to you um, before the show, actually a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about what things, in your opinion, you know, make, are important in, in, kind of recreating the best fried chicken or or um, original, as you would say, more original recipes. And you said, more utensils. What in particular was that about? <laughs> well, um, I think some of your guests may know my work as a historic chef. Um, I've taken to calling myself that now since uh, that's what I do on a regular basis, interpret these foods and cook them in period clothing and cook them at sites where the only utensils you have are brick hearth a Dutch oven, a, a spider, um, whatever you can get from the land and this array of utensils. So, you know, the, the, the long fork is my favorite utensil for fried chicken because, you know, you don't get burned or catch on fire when that happens. Um, but uh, when I, if I can take you through the process, mm -hmm. the chicken um, is seasoned. I can't tell you. <laughs> it, there's a flour there. Um, 
I typically, uh, if I'm using heritage breed meat, which is rare for me in that context, because you know you have to know what you're doing if you're gonna wait, if you're gonna fry that very expensive chicken, and it has to be a young chicken. It has you know not an old bird that's been running around exercising a lot. Uh, the meat will be too tough, and then there's a the whole process of seasoning it, flouring it, um, letting it set so that the flour does not immediately leave the chicken once you put in the oil. And then on the open hearth, I actually do the whole thing with the trivet, uh, putting firewood beneath it, slowly getting the, the oil up to temperature. Sometimes I use lard if I'm doing a very, very, very precise interpretation of it. Um, and um, all of a sudden, you can see the whole process. That one pot or that one skillet, the amount of lard you had to amass to make it. This was a luxury dish. There's a reason why this was a Sunday dish. Because a lot of the ingredients were so expensive. Um, a lot of times when people talk to me about what enslaved people eat on a plantation, a lot of kids will say they ate chicken and biscuits or chicken and waffles. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's a stereotype. And I said, do you know how, how, even for a sharecropper after slavery, how incredibly expensive that would have been, what it would have taken in terms of resources? And so um, I think it takes about 20 to 30 minutes and in this long process of turning the chicken, making sure the fire is not too hot, and you have this beautiful golden brown chicken. You say a prayer before, during, and after it doesn't burn, <laughs> that it's completely cooked through. Right. And um, I have to say, it's it's a, when I make chicken on the open hearth, it, for me, it's, a tr- it's always a transformative, transcendent, and like ritual experience. Uh, my grandmother's, the best recipe I know of, I'm sorry, it's not in a book, it's my grandmother's. It was buttermilk, and it was set a certain amount of time. And, you know, there was always, like, the special trick was always poultry seasoning in the flour um, and other ingredients. And um, and I think that's so true for everybody, though. It's yeah. A, it's not a special recipe found posted anywhere today right. on, on any website. It's what you remember. That's what makes it comfort food. Right. It's something you remember from your youth or somebody who you really loved who made it. Uh, with love, and that and and that was the best recipe. Uh, you know, it's interesting because there you had mentioned the shea oil and the palmetto oil. You know, the, the healthier oils that were being used in the West African nations in frying this chicken, um, where we, you know, where you know it is the original fried chicken came. The recipes came mm-hmm. um, with the slaves. And then largely replaced with lard in this country when they came to America, when they were brought to America. Uh, Now a lot of people say, well, you know, there were a lot of other nations who did fry chickens. Yes, they did in many other ways. You know, braised them. Well, and even in the early colonists and the Scots were known to do a lot of fried chicken. But of course... It, as you mentioned, it wouldn't have been with the seasonings and the flavorings. So there was this melding of cultures, and they picked up you right. know, the, the wonderful things. I, um, w- now, what about the Asian fried? You know, there are so many Asian fried chickens that are very... Do we think that it was always fried chicken the way that, you know, on the bone? Or, you know, it's interesting. I mean, to, there's... Well, in what context? Because in the southern context... Yes, and there's actually, there's a reason why that dish takes so long to be put down on paper. The idea that you're eating anything with your hands is an issue of racial context. Mm. Same thing with barbecue. Um, we can even size this up by roast cooking things outside, 
eating innards, um, one-pot meals, things you can eat with your hands. Right. You had one pot. You only had an open right. fire, and it had a chicken running around. And the you yard, did not right? have a lot of you didn't have a lot of forks and utensils and those yeah. you know, and so that even corn the cob, even barbecue, even all these things that we take for granted, or you know shellfish that you eat with your hands, that was all verboten. That's what savages did. Indians and Negroes. Hmm. And that's what you see constantly in the literature. They're so barbaric. Why do they do this? You know, when you look at somebody eating fried chicken with, with a fork and knife, you're like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> but to us, that means nothing. But it shows you that there was an Africanization. There was a, a, there was a, a non-Western way of doing things that took time, but it was also part of the common culture. So these little, little, little things creep in. I think, I think now it's really exciting to see you know, read books where you have different fried chicken recipes from around the world, because much like barbecue and roasting meat, everybody sort of has a way of frying these, you know, animal proteins up. Um, and it's it's fun to play with panko versus, you know, cornmeal. And, you know, you know, or John T. Edge had a, um, a sweet tea brined fried chicken. Mm. So it's, 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 you know, it can be something, I mean, personally, um, I have a matzo meal fried chicken I do for Passover. So it's like, okay, but I do it my way instead of the way that you see in other Southern Jewish cooks do theirs. So it, we all have our little spin, our little take, and all, right. and, uh, all that. Well, what I, um, what I wanted to tell the, the listeners about, and, and I'm very excited for it too, as I'm sure you are, is that Michael appears in an episode of Henry Louis's Gates' his new PBS series, The African Americans, Many Rivers to Cross. It actually premieres um, this week, uh, it, but, you know, you'll be hearing this, but when you're hearing this, it will have already premiered. So I hope that you could catch all the different episodes. I'm, you know, I'm sure they will be yeah, replayed. They'll be replayed. They'll be replayed, okay. And you'll get to catch Michael in, in one of the episodes. And you talk a lot, a lot about your project called the Culinary Gene Project, Michael. Can you explain for us a little bit what that is? So uh, the cooking gene. The cooking gene. Cooking, um, I'm sorry, the cooking no gene. No problem. Yes. <laughs> I like that title, too. I, I, I dig that. Um, the cooking gene, I've had a lot of, a lot of time. With, first, it was a project. And then I reflected on the fact that the project was my entire life. It wasn't just something I neatly. I tried to do that. I tried to shove this entire journey into the project format that everybody likes to do. And then I started hearing, we don't like that anymore. That's, uh-huh. that's kind of boring. <laughs> so I figured, okay, well, this is a lifetime's work and it's going to continue, God willing. Um, but having had a chance to think about it and kind of repackage it, you know, I'm the guinea pig. Do you, how many American food writers, American cooks, um, can you name who have taken the principles of genealogy and applied them to their own unique family food history mm. and their family story. So we all know that how people eat affects their destiny. Irish potato famine, perfect example. So I'm taking a look at my own family history. And by the way, it's not just um, enslaved Africans or free people of color. Uh, I don't think there were very many of that in my family, but we'll see. Um, but it's also, you know, the European Americans in my family, some of whom went back to uh, 1620s New England. So there's all these interesting stories going on. But I guess the idea is that the combination of genetics, actual DNA, how does that, how does that 0.1% percent 
that separates you and I. Everything else is the same. Mm-hmm. Gender, all that stuff is included in the difference, but our phenotype is only that small of a difference. It makes us different, you know, on the, on the outside. So looking at that, looking at how that affects health, what does it mean to be part of this, this genetic, you know, we talk about health and food, but we can't get, get around it, and particularly being of color. How does that affect things? How do the, the foods your ancestors ate talk to their condition in life? So then you get to talk about all of the, the, the tough stuff, but do it in such a way that people understand that these day-to-day motions of meals and meaning and migration impact everything that we do. We're in history right now. We're going to be some of this history later. So the cooking gene is my way of kind of like turning the microscope on myself, on this country, and on the development and history of Southern food. Well, and certainly your work in in that and the the, um, Southern discomfort tour (laughs) that you made around the South, basically making people kind of wake up and realize the, as you say, the debt that the, that, you know, Southern cuisine owes to the West African influence. Make a a debt. And also we need to figure out ways to reinvigorate a lot of the communities that have been affected by this. I mean, one of the things that was really beautiful to see was the fact that there are these, these Southern blues communities, what I call them Southern blues communities, um, kind of blighted black towns, neighborhoods, you know, around Petersburg, Virginia, around different towns in Georgia, mm. um, the, certainly the inner cities of Atlanta and other places. And yet you have people um, who are creating farms in the inner city, four-acre farms, two-acre farms, and kids who are excited to come there and, you know, grow stuff, do participate in programs. They're seeing black chefs come and do these special, these, you know, volunteer cooking demos um, they have their own farmers markets, um, Montgomery and Athens, Georgia, and New Orleans with Jenga Window. All this community grassroots work to end, or at least start to put a dent. I say with end, but put a dent in this sort of food desert problem. You know, the I forget his name, but I call him Bunk from the Wire. Uh, Wendell, uh, the name escapes me. Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry. There you go. There you go. Thank you, Bunk. Yeah. Thank. Th- th- hi, Bunk. Um, and his whole grocery store program. I mean, they're, we're using this heritage um, of marketing, of growing our own food, to be a springboard for the next generation to say, okay, we need to go back to some of these things to save ourselves, to give us a new, an opportunity, a chance. So, yes, it's the idea of recognizing where we come from, where all of us come from, what those contributions have been and our interactions in the past, but also using that as a springboard to looking into now. How can we improve relationships among different ethnic communities, racial, so-called racial communities now? How can we improve the diet and the food access now? How can we make our history a tool to improve our future? Excellent. Well, we are going to continue this conversation and bring in one of my other guests as soon as we come back from a short break. Just wanting not to need it makes me let it 
Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit www.surreyfarms.com. We're back on A Taste of the Past, and I'm speaking with Michael Twitty, um, culinary historian and living history interpreter. I like that. Uh, you actually, Michael, recently um, did an enslaved barbecue reinterpretation yes. or something, right? And I know I don't want to give away all kinds of things that were asked so that they're going to be on the television show, but um, you you mentioned that there were so uh, several dishes that are pretty much extinct now that you have not but that you have been able to research and find out and you see a lot of relation to what we eat or different other cultures um, eat today uh, one of them in particular I think you mentioned was kush can you describe to me some of these dishes or that one in particular well, yeah so kush very simply is um, an african-american term however I'll tell you a neat, neat story about that in a second it, it was a crossover dish. And it comes from Kusha. Kusha is a Haza adaptation of Maghrebi Arabic couscous. <laughs> and so in Brazil, they call it couscous. In Cajun French, they call it couscous. And couscous is a breakfast dish. And basically, it's cornmeal or actually stale cornbread that's broken up and made into um, either a breakfast food or um, a savory food. In most American plantations, Kush meant you took uh, um, the last night's cornbread, whatever was left over, and you made a little hash out of it. Um, now you put whatever herbs you had in it. You use a little bit of grease, whatever grease you had. You certainly um, included any wild onions, any salt that you had access to, and hot pepper. And so basically, it's basically cornbread stuffing hash. <laughs> That's basically what it is, but not, it's delicious. Right. <laughs> you know, green onions or ramps. You fry those up. You put the, the the old cornbread in there, and then you you know throw in salt, salt and hot pepper, and you go to town. Now you see how that affected my life as having a father <laughs> who was a southerner from Tennessee. His breakfast was day old cornbread crumbled up and in a milk. glass and buttermilk right? it's like my grandmother <laughs> that, right that was his breakfast and, and right? that's and that's the kind of thing that that excites me is that we don't tell these stories to each other enough and it was a, i remember when i had my first website this white lady from north carolina wrote in and said please do you have a recipe for this have you ever heard of kush before and i said certainly and i gave the recipe and she said this is exactly what my father made. She said she was so emotional, she broke into tears when she saw her because she was it brought her back memories. And so the idea here is that, you know, we're so used to the idea of 
Eurocentric culture being the basis for everything universal. But my point is, oh, no, 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 no. Other people's culture, you know, the, the, Amer- the Native American effect on food, we're all participating in the result of their civilizations. Right. Right? So same thing with African. By doing those some of those customs, we're all Africans. Hey, another comfort food, Kush. Because we were talking about fried chicken being the comfort food. And, of course, there is a terrific recipe that still floats around because it's in her books that we know of. And it's a fried chicken recipe by Edna Lewis. And tell me the the little quirk in that recipe. Quickly, because I'm going to lead on to why I mentioned it. So all it is is that... Edna throws everything in that pan. She a little bit of butter, some lard, um, a little a slice of country ham for uh-huh. extra flavor. <laughs> it's it's intense. You can tell that it was a ritual for her. Yeah. Well, and I bring up Edna Lewis because I, most everyone I'm sure knows uh, who Edna Lewis is, the wonderful chef. She's no longer with us. The the um, chef and cookbook author who uh, was very influential in, <laughs> interestingly enough two very important New York restaurants, Gage and Tolner and Nicholson's. And there is a panel, once once again, by the time we hear this, uh, the panel will have taken place, but it's, um, I'm I'm so happy it's happening, a panel talking about Edna Lewis's life and um, and her history and, and how she transcended, as I said, the, you know, the, the black woman in the kitchen and, uh, I am joined by another one of the panelist members, Tanya Hopkins. And Tanya is a little bit of a, um, a food writer and a an experiencer and of not only history but contemporary cuisine. She calls herself the food griot. Welcome, Tanya. Hello. Oh, what's a food griot? Okay, for those who don't aren't familiar with that word, and I admittedly have had to look it up. <laughs> Griot means storyteller, and it's the French version of a West African word for storyteller, raconteur, poet, historian. And as I, we talked earlier, I see the world through the lens of food, so thereby, I, therefore I am the food storyteller, or the, um, the food griot, an American food storyteller. That's, that's terrific. So the two of you are on this panel about Edna Lewis, and so what... How, what, are, what is your take on her importance to, um, to American cuisine and to the, or, or the, even to the African-American experience with cuisine in, in today? One of the many beauties of Edna's story is that, you know, she's born in the early 20th century and um, passes on in the 21st century so she's her life spans an entire century that is filled with stories american food stories that um are relevant to everyone black and white and she herself symbolizes the connecting power and the bonding power of food um i don't know michael you want to talk a little bit i'm focusing on the panel of edna's career in new york city she comes um to new york city in the 30s as a teenager, actually, and um, from Virginia, from uh, Freetown, and stays with an aunt and uncle who live in Harlem. And um, matter of fact, much of her time in New York City, she's living in Harlem. Um, And what I love to look at, I like to look at her in the larger context of 
the American story, the black American story, particularly the Great Migration right. that happens. Um, uh, Isabel Wilkerson's work that um, Warmth of Other Sons has so wonderfully documented of this migration of Southerners, primarily black Southerners that come north, Harlem being one of the hugest uh, magnets, starting as early as 1910, 1950, 15, up into uh, approximately around 1970. So we've already placed Edna's coming in in the 30s, but what's important to know is that Southern-style cookery uh, arrives before Edna by several decades. So uh, a lot of the stuff we will read about her, you, you start to think that, you know, we New York didn't know Southern cooking or Southern style before Edna Lewis, but that speaks to the de facto kind of pockets people lived in and segregation that happened even in New York City, right. not necessarily legally, but um, and that's her. The importance is that she the connect the, the connection, the the diversity, the partnership that she has with Johnny Nicholson, um, a white man in 1949 New York City, and how they open this restaurant that becomes the um, the place to be um, at that time. That's right. Um, you know, it's interesting because she, I, I like what you said about how she, the influence she had on kind of having that Southern cuisine experience, how everything coalesced then, and it, and it became a cuisine of, um, of stature. Right. And and desirable, and I think that that's that's a very wonderful, interesting. And, and then her, um, you know, her association with Scott Peacock, another white man who you know took her and she lived with him, and that again a southerner. But so they shared. It's the southern. You were saying it's you know that point zero zero one percent that separates us all. But what they shared was this southern experience. Right. And I think that's very important. So, Michael, you and you have a take on on Edna. How anything additional to add well, on that was? Well, what's interesting about her her South? There are many Souths. It's <laughs> not one South. Um, is that her South was the the Northern Piedmont of Virginia, um, not the Deep South. And I think that shows a lot of her cooking. It's very you know. Virginian cooking was very sort of, I wouldn't say plain Jane, but plainer compared to other parts. Certainly not like Louisiana. Um, a lot more herbs. Um, a lot less um, hot pepper. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very delicately used. And she's coming from a part of Virginia that had long um, gone into other areas of agriculture other than, you know, cotton and tobacco. That wasn't the thing there. And so that particular influence, the way she cooked, but also I think it goes to, we often give a lot of credit to other food writers and food personalities for the idea of sustainable, local, and organic eating. And she was saying in the 1970s, before anyone thought about this, she said, I wish people, I wish young people would come back to the South, would grow these foods would learn how to forage and harvest like we did according to the seasons and would appreciate the freshness of the food itself. And it's that sort of um, self-reliant, homegrown um, attention to detail that sets her apart because it's not just, okay, open up a can of this, it's grow it. It's kind of like where the whole food movement is going today, right? Right. Exactly, yeah. Mm. It was very important to her, the seasonality. The other thing is um, the 
her cooking, her cookery style, um, Southern from the area she's uh, coming from. And Michael, you and I talked about that. But also, in this particular region, uh, compared to the rest of the U.S. other than New Orleans, the early French early French influences, pre-Julia Child, mm-hmm. um, coming through Jefferson and Madison, and the, the, cook, the, the styles, the plantation style of cookery that has had that influence much earlier kind of trickles down into her family's cookery style. And I, I mention that because Cafe Nicholson, the cuisine there, the food there was described as uh, French Southern. Um, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Which is how Jefferson's food was described, right. half Virginian, half French. Right. And Jefferson was from... Albemarle County, which is right next door to Orange County, Virginia, where she lived. Huh, interesting. Yeah. And so, and some of the most, um, you know, famous or most talked about dishes served at Cafe Nicholson are her cheese souffles, chocolate souffle also, um, a way of roasting chicken, not exactly French, but kind of French-esque similar, um, styles of cookery that came natural to her already, but, you know, it, but it was were trendy at the time, so it be, they played up on it <laughs> right right well it's it's fascinating you know what i'm going to do um we have we're running out of time here today but i want people to be able to get the whole picture of the edna lewis influence and and how and that and realize that it does go much further than that i think we'll be able to put up a link to the panel discussion because right. this will air after the fact and um it's andy smith over at the new school is is sponsoring this um panel and as part we, of his culinary limit right and we will put the link to that discussion up um on my page afterwards and i encourage everybody to tune into pbs to catch the i'm gonna get the um, title right help me out here the african-americans many rivers to cross yes yeah, and that was great jimmy cliff song the hundred hundred rivers to cross is that right that's that's great well thank you both Don, tanya hopkins and michael twitty for joining me here today there's so much more we need to talk about yes okay and thank you for listening again i'm your host linda palaccio and this has been a taste of the past thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org you can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.